Today's episode of Tech Talks on the Unsettled Media Podcast Network is brought to you by Tech Impact, focused on unlocking prosperity by embracing technology. For more, head to techimpact.it. Welcome to Tech Talks with Kathy Simpson. I'm your host, or if you're a regular listener, welcome back as we continue our series on diversity and inclusion. I'm really excited about today's show. My two guests are walking the walk and talking the talk or whatever that darn expression is. They are backing up their ideas, their thoughts, their desire for change with real action through Sandpiper Ventures here in Atlanta, Canada. Today on Tech Talks, my guests are Kathy Bennett and Rhiannon Davies, two of the founders of Sandpiper Ventures. Sandpiper provides investment capital and mentorship to Atlantic Canadian companies led by women. Kathy and Rhiannon are vibrant, engaged, dedicated, hopeful, optimistic, and determined. They are my kind of people, and I could have kept talking to them all day. We're going to talk about what void in the market they are filling by providing capital to women entrepreneurs. It's significant and important. So let's start. I'll tell you a little bit about our guests. Kathy grew up in Newfoundland and has spent her entire career there. She has a long history of being an entrepreneur, starting as a founder with the Bennett Group of Companies in Newfoundland. She's a giver and developed a real sense of curiosity around fairness and equity from a very young age. She shares her love of being an early adopter, giving feedback, sharing business insights, and she's doing that as a co-managing partner with Sandpiper Ventures and through her board positions with organizations such as Propel ICT, Kraken Robotics, BDC, and more. She's even spent time as a minister in the Newfoundland government. Rhiannon was born in New Brunswick and has lived throughout North America and in Europe. She recently returned with her family by a sailboat to Nova Scotia. I'm sure we could have spent a whole episode learning about her family's sailing adventures. She brings a depth of experience working for international businesses that were growing, pivoting, and undergoing major transformations. She's attracted to change and innovation and entrepreneurship, and she shares how she's taking that larger organizational experience to the work that she's doing today. She also is a director on numerous boards such as NSBI and Volta and is involved in CDL and more in Atlantic Canada. As per a recent article in Entrevestor, Atlantic Canada looks set to post a banner year for startup funding, but one category of company represents a well of untapped potential, and that's companies led by women. Companies with women in their C-suites are not only underrepresented in the innovation community, but also raise far less money on a proportional basis than male-run businesses. Entrevestor's 2020 Startup Data Report, released last month, shows that just 14% of Atlantic Canadian startups are female-led, and they raise just 3% of equity funding. So you know why, as part of this diversity and inclusion series, we're talking to these women. And we want to learn more about Sandpiper Ventures. And we're going to dive right into this discussion today. And I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. I have two amazing guests here today. Happy to have Rhiannon and Kathy. It's going to be able to, hopefully you won't get confused between my voice and the other Kathy. We even spell our name the same. Uh, so welcome to you both to Tech Talks. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Kathy. 
So um, I'm going to start with Rhiannon, and then you'll get our voices straight as we're here on the podcast. Rhiannon, tell us a little bit about where you're from, what it was like growing up, what kind of a kid were you, and how did you decide what you were curious about and what you wanted to do for your career? How did that process go? Yeah, sure. I, I grew up um, on, a, on a hobby farm, a sheep farm, just outside of Fredericton, New Brunswick. And my mom um, was a, uh, a textile artist and uh, who turned uh, into a, sort of an environmental academic. And my father was a, a professor at UNB. Um, and, and I think what that life instilled in me was a curiosity, certainly around nature and the outside growing up on a farm. But also, I mean, I was... I was born in Boston. I've lived in a number of places. Um, and it. my parents had a great sense of adventure in sort of moving to rural New Brunswick, um, setting up a farm. And uh, and we lived sort of a, a wild and wonderful and very free life compared to, I think, what children live today. And, uh, and I think that gave me a, a great grounding, a great sense of adventure, um, an interest in, in new things, but always a tie back to sort of yeah, Atlantic Canada and, and nature and, uh, and people. And how did it shape your thinking about what you wanted to study after you were finished high school? Well, I, I always had, a, as I say, a lot of freedom to, to decide. And I think that really stamped out a lot of the path that I took. I, I started out um, and I did a degree in political science, political theory and international politics, and um, then realized, because I wanted to change the world, and uh, and then realized quite rapidly that that, that may it, it was useful to have some technical background if I really wanted to understand how to change the world effectively. Um, so I, I followed that up with a, a civil engineering degree. And civil engineering at the time was um, uh, it very much focused on um, bridge building and, and construction. And uh, and I did a, a sort of an environmental stream of that. Um, and that sort of brought me to a balance between um social studies impact history politics and the technology and the way those two things could could work together and i think that sort of is another step in my development that led me to a pathway and i and i ultimately rather than practicing as an engineer i i went straight into consulting which was fascinating as well um and that was sort of the third phase that said ah okay this exposed me to a huge number of companies and a huge number of technologies and ultimately enabled me to to move to europe so that sort of expanded my horizons further with uh, with the background that i had so we're going to get back to your career you're back in atlantic canada even though you've lived in multiple places tell us what it's like to be back in halifax it's such a pleasure, um, particularly during COVID. I think we've been extraordinarily lucky in, uh, in Atlantic Canada. And it's just wonderful to be in a place that is vibrant and changing and innovating, but at the same time that is grounded in yeah, the very approachable, very open people and uh, an incredible nature. So so I really feel like we've, we've hit this incredible balance here. <laughs> and I feel extremely lucky to have uh, have made this choice and, and to be embraced by the community here. So what, what do you enjoy to do outside of work when you're not thinking about work and innovation and all of that? What do you enjoy doing in Halifax? Yeah, well, I have, I have a family, a 13-year-old and a 15-year-old, and, um, and a husband and a dog. And I 
I'm an offshore sailor, um, so I've, I've spent a lot of time on the boat, and we still spend time on the boat. We spend a lot of time hiking. Um, we're quite an intimate family because we uh, we sailed here on our on our sailboat. So we spent a year in very close quarters with each other. And I think even though my children have have reached that complicated age of teenagehood, um, we're still very very close as a as a as a as a, as a group. Um, and that's not to say that it's always perfect, far from it. But um, but I think that's that's helped us to to, to stay as a unit. Um, so yeah, a, a lot of I, I, quite simple, a lot of family, um, spending time outdoors, reading books, and sitting on sitting on a sailboat, letting the breeze blow. That sounds a great like a great way to have some joy in Halifax. My husband and I have a old twenty five foot sailboat, and we were sailing on the river last night. So it was a beautiful night. So we, I understand the desire to be close to the water. It's it's pretty attractive, Kathy. Tell us about life on the rock. You live in St. John's, Newfoundland. Tell us a little bit about where you were born, what it was like growing up. Give us the scoop. Well, um, my parents were originally from the East Coast, which is uh, where St. John's is located. But I was born on the West Coast of the island and spent my um, younger years growing up in Cornerbrook and Stephenville um, and um, really kind of enjoyed you know, what would have been a, 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 a little tiny urban rural life in Stephenville and Cornerbrook, very small communities. Um, you know, the doors, people's doors were left open. I ran into my best friend's house, you know, because the door was open and she ran into mine. And it was kind of just very, um, very comfortable and very safe. And I, we spent another um, year before we moved to St. John's in a fishing community where my mom grew up, uh, called for Muse. And I had, uh, a summer job, you know, cutting cod tongues uh, from mm-hmm. codfish as the fish came up over the wharf. Um, so, you know, it, it was a um, very, I would say, very rural um, kind of experience, but also very entrepreneurial. My dad was a pharmacist, had uh, worked for many uh, uh, owners over the course of his career. And my consciousness of his job uh, was really formed at around five when um, he would come home from a pharmacy with these comic books and he would, um, you know, they could tear off the cover of the comic book if it wasn't sold and give it back to the wholesaler and the wholesaler would reimburse them. So I would get these coverless comic books and uh, set up a stand out in the front of our house and sell these um, comic books um, for five cents a piece to pay for the swimming uh, fees that myself and my best friend would would uh, uh, use. So um, at a very early age, entrepreneurship was something that was encouraged and um, fostered, although I don't think we called it that. I think it was more about my parents growing up very impoverished uh, in their families, very large Newfoundland families, and uh, you know, trying to encourage me to make a buck wherever I could, um, and it really uh, lit the entrepreneurial gene in me. What were you curious about as you were going through high school and then debating, what am I going to do in university? Well, I think the, the the Kathy of today can look back and say that, you know, what I was curious about was fairness. Um, you know, it used to really be, um, I was often considered the noisy one who would be standing up for, you know, my best friend had Down syndrome. Um, so I would be the one that would make sure that, you know, if anyone was picking on my, my friend, I was the one that was, uh, you know, charging forward to protect her. Or in high school when um, international students who were part of a very large class. I went to the largest all-girls school in Newfoundland at the time. And, uh, you know, when uh, people from other provinces or other countries weren't welcomed, 
Um, I was often the one that was stood at the front of the class arguing with the locals, um, saying, can we be nicer and can we be kinder? And if you're not going to be, then you're going to have to deal with me. Um, so I think, you know, for me, um, the whole idea of fairness and, you know, everybody has value and everybody has a place was what, my, was what made me curious. Academically, though, I was very scientifically focused. So okay. decided to go to university to become a physicist. Um, and the first, um, after about six weeks, um, I had the experience that many university students of the day were having is that I'm not sure that this was the right thing for me. I was 16, very young, going into university and decided I'd take a year off. So I got a job working in retail and applied to go to nursing school and uh, got accepted to go to nursing school and also got offered a management job at the retail location that I worked at, which was a McDonald's restaurant. Um, the McDonald's restaurant gave me a lots of opportunity to stand up for people who uh, needed to be protected by the man and uh, for the man, so to speak. And um, so I chose that path. And uh, it was a pretty uh, interesting journey over the, the next 35 years. Well, we're going to get into that because you have a lifelong relationship with that organization, mm-hmm. that's for sure. Um, you have family in Newfoundland. You yeah, enjoy so- your time there. What do you like to do when you're not thinking about work? Well, so I'm a self-admitted workaholic, and everybody who knows me understands that I have that disease. Um, you know, so for me, if I'm not working on the businesses or working uh, now in this new passion with Sandpiper Ventures, I'm finding volunteer work to do. So whether it was building Ronald McDonald House or, you know, working on Task Force uh, NL last year uh, when we, you know, kind of helped a little bit during the pandemic here in Newfoundland, um, I always wanted to be working with other people and trying to solve problems. Um, I do read. Um, and I, every now and then, if I'm really, really quiet and I can get my mind slowed down enough, I might do the occasional bit of cross stitch, but please don't tell anybody. <laughs> if anybody, if anybody ever found out that Kathy Bennett did a little bit of cross stitch with a cup of tea and ruined my reputation. So we're just going to keep that between us. You might have a long list of, uh, asks for that, the great work that you're doing there. <laughs> Oh, well, it'll, so it'll be a, it'll be a long wait because it's, it's slow, slow going. <laughs> so, I, I appreciate Kathy these questions that you're asking us because I, I I spent the last two years getting to know Kathy I think very very well and and she's become a very close friend. But I still, in a conversation like this, hear new stories and it's it's so fantastic and I can picture Kathy in her youth sticking up for people as she continues to do. It's it's wonderful to hear. Well, but I, what I find so fascinating is I can see you doing that, Kathy. I can see how it has made you pick paths in your career. And it started when you were in junior high, middle school, high school. So it's always so fascinating when we learn more about people's perspectives and what they're bringing to the table. So you both have very different backgrounds. Tell us about, uh, maybe Kathy, we'll start with you. You started and had a very strong relationship with that McDonald's chain. Tell us a little bit about your career choices. You've gone from entrepreneurship to politics, you know, to what you're doing now, which we're going to spend lots of time talking about Sandpiper and that work. How have you decided what path you want to take with your career? Yeah, so I mean, the McDonald's experience um, um, satiated a real uh, thirst in me to learn. So there was it was quick paced, quick pace. Um, I got a chance to learn to do everything from opening new restaurants to hiring staffs of a hundred to, um, you know, I, I led 
uh, chaired the McDonald's Technology Leadership Forum uh, for five years, sat on it for a decade, sat on the marketing national marketing group. So I got to experience a lot of different things in a very big organization. And at the same time, got a chance to hang out with young people, really young people, lots of inexperienced people who had pretty ex- exciting you know, um, future careers, but also really exciting learning in the, um, in the restaurant business because it's, you know, it's a, a, it can be a tough industry sometimes, really tough at the front counters and quick service is even tougher, I think, in some respects. So it was really nice to be able to see the growth of people. I, I have, you know, employees that used to work for me. We had about 4,000 employees across wow. my path over the 35 years. And, you know, we have, you know, people, in, you know, in the healthcare sector, the, you know, leaders around the world who, you know, started their careers in the restaurant in, in the McDonald's franchise here in St. John's. And it's pretty, pretty powerful to have, know that I was a little teeny part of that. You mentioned politics. I remember, you know, it was during the dark days of a period in my political career that I got a message from a, um, an employee who had worked with me when he was 16, 17. And I had actually given him some really tough, tough feedback. And he wrote me and said, you know, if everybody would only speak as truthfully as you did, um, I would be a much better person. You taught me to listen. And I took that skill and went on to become a social worker and I'm affecting people's lives now. So you never know, right? You can mentor somebody at 16, 17 and have a really big impact on them uh, later on in life. And for me, you know, Sandpiper Ventures is a really, really important part of being able to manifest that thing that I loved about the restaurant business into kind of this phase of my life and being able to mentor uh, new new founders. So how did you get into politics and work in government? Um, we had, uh, I had spent a number of years working on Ronald McDonald House here in Newfoundland Labrador. I uh, felt that was the right work for the right reasons. Uh, you know, it was, it had a good, um, people needed the housing and I was happy to, you know, figure out a way to make it happen. And my young son had told me that he was okay with me doing work for other people, but he wasn't so much okay with me working for profit. And it became very evident that, you know, the choices I was making were going to impact how he viewed me. So I thought the province had been really, uh, and the community had been really generous to our family and it was time for me to give back. So politics was a way that I thought, and more, more importantly, public service as opposed to politics was a way for me to give back. So it was, you know, five years, uh, very happy. I, I had the opportunity to do it. And, uh, you know, I had some of the constituency experiences um, were some of the most memorable uh, moments and positive moments I experienced in that five years. When you think about that time and then your volunteer work, where do you tend to lean to on your volunteer efforts? What are the things that are driving your decisions? Because I'm sure you're being asked a lot to contribute. Yeah, I mean, I, I like to focus on where I know I can make um, make a difference and make something a little bit better for somebody. Um, you know, we have so many people in our communities that work really, really hard. And if they're struggling with a problem and, you know, I may have a skill set that can help solve that and it's less effort for me, but it's a big value to them. I, that's what I, I tend to, to like to do. But I always like to do it contrary to popular belief. I do like to do it behind the scenes. I prefer not to be on the stage if I can get away with it. Um, but, you know, one of the things about being politics or being a leader in a franchise system uh, is that you're often the leader on the on the podium so by default I've ended up in those situations hope to hope to limit those in the future if I can so all your time has been in Newfoundland Kathy yeah yeah so I'm I've been here since I was born and and will be here 
uh, in some form or another, hopefully till I, I demise. So Rhiannon, totally different story. You have traveled, you've worked for companies throughout North America, Asia, Europe. Tell us what got you in that mind of being kind of an international worker, let's call it that for the time being. Tell us a little bit about the path you took in your career choices. Yeah, I, I think it was, at, I, I, and I've reflected a lot on sort of what brought me to where I where I am today and, and sort of full circle. Um, and it, it certainly wasn't a a strategic plan by any stretch of the imagination. It was it was very much a series of somewhat opportunistic steps that were driven by curiosity and yeah, just a, a an interest in in an an understanding how 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 far I could go. If I if I understood that something was out there, I I I wanted to to actually grasp it and see and 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 I guess pushing myself a little bit. Um, towards the edge of, of discomfort, because I am quite an introverted person. So to go into a completely new um, place and society and culture is um, was not something that sort of naturally fits my, my personality, although in hindsight, I always enjoy it. Um, so I think I, I coming out of university, I, I moved into consulting because I found in that process that I wasn't terribly interested in kind of the unit processes in engineering, but much more in sort of the holistic view and, and also how technology could drive business. Um, and consulting was a f- perfect spot for that because you you have access and you see into the bowels of, of a number of different businesses. And I found that fascinating. Um, but I only spent, um, I think it was in the end, six years at that, um, three in Toronto and three in uh, in the Netherlands, because at a certain point I found that I... I needed more ownership, and as a consultant, you 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 come in and you and you either fix or break something depending upon um, <laughs> how effective you are, and uh, and then you walk away, and uh, and you leave behind you know either the wonder or the or the damage that that you have done, and I felt that I needed more and more ownership, um, and again, sort of a, a, an opportunity came across my path, and many many people said, ah, oh, you know that's uh, that's uh, that's not the direction to go, that's. Uh, but um, but I stepped into in an industry in medical technology and uh, and in uh, and in nutrition, um, and starting from my background in engineering and my consulting life as uh, focused on logistics and supply chain and sort of the 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 the, the operations and the and, and the guts of how um, a, a business and and particularly a, a consumer or healthcare business is is served. Um, and ultimately, in that organization, started moving more and more into a, a commercial role. And that company, which was uh, was called Numico, and Numico was about a two billion dollar company, two and a half billion euro company at the time, um, and was moving from near bankruptcy um, when I entered. And and I certainly cannot take the credit for it, but ultimately was sold for $18 billion to Group Danone. And at the time was the fastest growing food company, um, specialized nutrition company in the, in the world uh, with leading positions in, uh, in the markets that we were in. And that trajectory that I was so fortunate to have been part of and to play an operational role in led me to a deeper under another step of understanding of myself that I don't like to be in places where I cannot leave an imprint and I don't like to be in places where it's too large. It's, it's such a large machine that, um, that, that the processes drive the decision-making. So that was for me uh, an eye opener to say, wow, um, I need 
flexibility, I need speed, I need change, um, and I need ownership. Um, and I came out of that, and, and quite shortly after that, we we uh, I, I coming out of Danone, uh, I uh, I had recently had kids. My kids were one and three at the time, um, and it had been a a, a long journey um, and a, a difficult process. So taking a company of that size through any change of this kind was is. I won't say traumatic, but but time consuming. And I also have Kathy's trait of being a workaholic and that doesn't help in those situations because it's difficult to walk away. Um, so at that point we felt as a family that it was time to, to step back and try something new. And that was traumatic in itself for me as well because if you have a large team and, and, and ownership and you're driving change and, and you really feel like a passion for what you're doing, to shut off completely and to and to 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 turn yourself into a much smaller world is quite difficult. But we did it, and and we set off on a on a voyage on our first sailboat with the kids when they were very very small. Um, and coming back to uh, life in Amsterdam following that journey, I had a great deal of fear of wow, you know, people don't take well to women taking time off, and and people don't take well to uh, to people following pathways that are not necessarily linear. Um, and I found two types of people coming back. One type of person who was not at all open to the experience that I had, and the other type of person who asked me sort of, you know, what did you learn in that process? And, and how has that changed you as a person? Um, and my answer to that is always, it's it's quite resoundingly that I, that I, I stopped being afraid of things. And that made such a huge difference in my life because through the course of having gone through that process and seeing different parts of the world and seeing how different people live and stepping away from growth and profit and, and consumer, which were all so, so all consuming to me for a period of time takes you to a different level of understanding. And I, and I, and, and made me better in business, oddly enough, because I took away that fear. I, I took away fear of failure. I took away fear of min, sort of minutia. And I and I I became much more strategic in my thinking. Um, so when I came back, I, I was I was looking for something outside of the food industry because I, I do feel that the consumer products food industry has many pieces, and I think Kathy has seen this as as well, that um, made me very uncomfortable from a human rights perspective, from a sustainability perspective, from an environmental perspective. Um, so I stepped into a, a role um, on the board of an NGO and I started looking for something outside of the food industry temporarily. Um, and I was headhunted at the time by a, a private equity company called Grand Vision, which was in, in all places optical retail. And optical retail is probably the dustiest, most boring industry in the in the entire world. Um, <laughs> but um, but I, I met with the with the organization that was backing Grand Vision and uh, and they were quite fascinating. And they had a vision to change that industry and to change that industry from a supply chain perspective, a logistics perspective, a consumer facing perspective, because it is such an antiquated industry. And so that was for me sort of the moment, and, I, and I'm trying to describe little moments of change in my life that have led me to where I am today. That was the moment for me where I, I faced the first sort of piece of disruption. And I thought, wow, I, I really want to be part of that, uh, that disruption. And with Grand Vision, it was, it was a, a, a collection of 
6,000 stores in, in 20 companies um, that sold glasses and, and, uh, and, did, uh, and contact lenses and did laser surgery. And they brought in a group of, of five of us and said, make us, make us a multinational company. And we did that. Um, we actually sort of created from these, you know, tiny stores all over the world, um, we created a multinational company and we built, you know, the inner workings and we built the supply chain and we built the logistics and we built a brand portfolio um, and we built a sales process and a consumer experience that was quite unique. Um, and in doing so, um, we became the sort of the only um, international player um, and we bought a lot of new businesses. We expanded into uh, to 20 new markets um, and ultimately um, took the company public on the Amsterdam Stock Exchange. And again, um, I, I spent two years um, with that company thinking, poof, yeah, wonderful um, change and growth and evolution and disruption. But um, yeah, working for a big public company is not my cup of tea. So that was the point where I, I jumped with my family back on the boat and, uh, and came back to Halifax to, to sort of get back to my roots and be closer to my parents. But think about how great that experience is in the innovation and entrepreneurship field because you've seen the disruption, you've seen the growth, you know what it takes. So it just seems like a perfect fit for what you're doing now. It's Both of you don't have these deep technical backgrounds, but yet you're doing work with CDL and Volta and Propel and Kraken Robotics and all of these companies that are just, and organizations that are so tied into tech. What got you interested in the tech space, Kathy? And how did you end up following into that path in some of your board positions that probably opened up your eyes to a different type of entrepreneurial opportunity for Newfoundlanders and Atlantic Canadians. Yeah, I mean, I think the experience with the uh, technology leadership work at McDonald's was a big eye-opener for me. I mean, I I always think there's an easier way to do something. Everything, there's always an easier way to do it. There's a better way to do it. There's a more efficient way. There's a more environmentally friendly way. And I think technology, through that that work, um, it manifested itself as one of the solutions to problems. And for me, um, you know, I, I think we can, we can only um, see technology in the context of the restrictions of our own experiences sometimes. So I became known real quickly as an early adopter. I mean, you want to try, you want to try a piece of technology? Call Kathy. She'll try it out. And I became very uh, comfortable with giving user feedback, which in I think in the technology industry is one of the things that um, you know inventors really want. They want to know what the u- they want to know as much about the user's experience. And for me, that was a, a place that um, I felt I could add value. The other side of it is that you know all businesses have to operate in an ethical, I believe, in an ethical way. Take care of their employees, take care of their customers, and the customers will take care of you. Real simple, um, from my perspective, anyway. And I, I don't think it matters whether it's a, t- a technology um, innovation or, um, or it's a, a, a service experience. Um, founders need to understand the fundamentals of business. And I think, you know, what I've learned is as a generalist who understands really well the fundamentals of business in small businesses, in joint venture partnerships, at publicly traded companies and crown corporations and, you know, sole proprietorships, I can bring um, a significant amount of value to a discussion with the founder 
of things that they've never ever thought of because they haven't experienced it. And I think that's where we can add value. And Rhiannon, what brought you to that space as well? Yeah, I, I guess I, I started my career in a, in a more technical space, but I think that the, the thing that opened my eyes the most was that was this process of, of taking a fairly integrated industry into um, a modern industry and, and understanding that technology is an underpinning element to, to all of that, but it's, it's more about sort of a, it sounds very trite, a change mindset and then understanding that there are very different ways that technology can manifest itself. And, uh, and for me, I mean, it, it, it was my team that was always approached with new technologies in terms of yet yeah, 3D printing of lenses and, and new coatings. And so, so that we had quite a, um, an interface with technologies in the, in the, in the medical technology and in the eyewear um, industry, also point of sales technology systems and, and retail technologies, because we had such an incredible um, retail, I mean, we had 6,000 stores, which is internationally, which is really unusual. Um, so we were approached with a lot of technology and it was always my team that was sort of the, the inroad to that. And, and we, you know, executed a couple of, uh, well, quite, quite several joint ventures and, and systems implementations. So I, I, I definitely developed a taste for it there. Um, but it was actually upon sort of returning to Halifax and, and coming to the realization that be it in, you know, the, the, the food supply chains in retail or any of the spaces that I, or healthcare and, and medical technology, any of the spaces that I've been touching upon, we're never actually going to see change. And we're never, there isn't enough space in the world for all of the people. And there aren't enough resources in the world for all of the people if we don't start getting smarter. And the only way we're going to get smarter is by implementing technologies that are going to enable those things because we don't fit anymore. Um, so that was for me the sort of a, the wake up. And then the next wake up was, oh my God, we're actually, there's some fascinating technologies and creating wonderful things. And isn't that wonderful? And don't I want to wrap my arms around that? But where are the women? But I think we're coming to that. We totally are. So, I mean, I can see how technology has been involved in so much of both of your careers, but it's obviously a passion. And at what point did you, in your careers, really notice that as you progressed, there were fewer women sitting beside you? And as you started to be working with females, entrepreneurs, and mentoring and being on boards, when did it really become obvious to you what the bejeepers is going on here? There's just not enough women at the table. Um, when did it hit you, Rhiannon? Too late, I have to say. I, I, I went through most of my career with a very merit-based, very selfish um, approach, I have to say. And, and, and it was in the back of my mind, and, but I didn't actually do anything about it because I was too busy proving that I could do it and I was a woman. If I could do it, then everybody could. But that's not the case. So I think I, I was looking at it from a very individual perspective to say, I'm going to prove it and I'm going to be the, 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 the one of the ones that, um, that is breaking ground. Without, without turning around enough to help the person behind me. Um, and I think it, it became very visible to me in, in, my, in my last company. In fact, I was, I was you know, in, informed at one point that, um, that um, there was no desire to have a woman on the team. 
And I had to prove that even though I was a woman, I, I, you know, I wasn't going to be, you know, crying or disrupting or, 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 you know, filling any of those, uh, stereotypes. Um, and secondly, I, I, you know, I, I was on, I was the only woman, um, on most of the teams and organizations at a senior level that I was ever on. Um, so there wasn't a moment. It was more of a, of a process. And I have to say in the last, I guess, five or six years of my career, change is starting to come into place. And there, there are more forums for, you know, women in technology, for women in manufacturing, for women in supply chain. Um, so there are places for us to go, but I, I didn't feel that I had a place to go to, to voice the fact that I was alone. And I think that was part of it as well. But I have seen change in the in the in the short term. I think your experience is very similar for many that, you know, you realized it too late. And for me, it was when all of a sudden I was asked to speak at schools and go into university classes. And then you have this feeling of am I being asked because I'm a woman or do they really think I have something to contribute and then when you're with these youth and you realize they have no idea about what the capabilities are, what these roles are, what being a tech entrepreneur is, what a computer science degree is all about. That's for guys coding in their basement. Like it's so far from the truth. I was like, I've been asleep at the wheel. Like, how come we haven't collectively as a society thought about this more? And now I think beyond females, I think about, you know, new immigrants and, and very many other minorities, uh, indigenous women and men and, and so many more. Did you have any moments? Was it a process for you as well, Kathy? Um, I think it was a process to find my assertive voice. I'll say that because um, for me, the, the, the pivoting in, in the pivoting moment personally uh, was when I had uh, been a restaurant manager for probably two or three years. I was, you know, when I was 18, I was managing a hundred people with making, and the restaurant was doing $4 million. This was back in the you know the early eighties. And, you know, I had worked for a couple of years. There was a promotion coming up for a supervisor. Um, my KPIs were better than anybody's. And my boss came in and said, we're not going to promote you because you might go, you might get pregnant. And that was the answer. It just, you, and I couldn't believe it. I mean, I had never, ever, ever, ever believed that because my body is different, somehow my uh, pathways uh, were going to be closed. I'd never experienced that before. But it wasn't until I, be, I became uh, minister responsible for the status of women where I had the privilege of working with the women's shelters organizations here in Newfoundland and Labrador. Amazing, amazing volunteers they're doing some really incredible work, you know, protecting women and children in battered situations and giving them, you know, refuge when they need it the most. And I would listen to the stories of the women and, and you know, the kids that had, had, you know, had to use these shelters um, that I realized that it's, you know, these small words, these beginning words, these thoughts that ultimately manifest themselves into violence. And for me, I just made a very conscious decision mm -hmm. that I was not going to not, I was not going to be silent anymore. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I spoke publicly about some experiences that I had as an elected official with, you know, death threats and, um, you know, you know, threats of violence, threats of rape and things like that. But it wasn't reinforced as strongly for me until I went to the United Nations the following year 
And we were sitting there as a group of Canadian politicians telling our story to these women who had congregated, you know, for 60 years. Um, every year there's a, this event at the United Nations to talk about women's role in the, in, the, in the globe. And as I was sharing my story, this woman, you know, jumped up from the back of the room in this beautiful African uh, attire, beautifully uh, articulate in her 80s. And she waved her fist and said, you will not be silenced. That I realized that if I ever find myself in a situation where I'm not giving voice to people who can't, then I'm really not living the values that I had when I was five, right? Or when I was in high school. So it became, um, you know, the, the working in the technology area, um, understanding the, the significant gaps we have, but also the, the access to capital. Massive differences in access to capital in this particular area that, um, you know, Sandpiper provides a really, really important outlet for me to exercise that, uh, that muscle that developed over multiple experiences. So why don't we jump right in? Rhiannon, why don't you tell us about Sandpiper? Where did it come from? How did it manifest itself? And maybe you could share what problems are you trying to solve with Sandpiper? Please. Sure. And, and Kathy, jump in at any time because this is a, this is a story that, that involves a, a number of, uh, of women and their brains and their hearts and, their, uh, and a lot of sweat. Um, but uh, yet Sandpiper came out of, you know, a group of women who had, who were, who were with an incredible variety of backgrounds, um, investors, executives, entrepreneurs, operators, um, but who had achieved sort of levels of success in our, in our own um, worlds and became involved in the tech sector and, and looked around ourselves and, and in our own individual worlds realized that we were quite alone there and that there weren't, I mean, there's, there's very little color. There's, there are very few women. Um, and it's, it's a very homogenous world and, and sort of scratching the surface, we all felt this in the Atlantic Canadian ecosystem, but we looked beyond that in the research that we did as we were creating Sandpiper and found that that ecosystem was, you know, Worse, but quite representative of of you know what uh, what people were seeing in the rest of the of the Western world, and that is that you know women in technology, women entrepreneurs in uh, in the tech sector do not have access to capital. Three um, percent of venture capital dollars goes to women led companies, and the statistics for women of color, Indigenous women, LGBTQ women, women with disabilities are are you know virtually non existent because they are so small. Um, and I think we all came to an individual and then a collective realization that we needed to, to take action. And so we, we spent a lot of time ideating and doing research and figuring out where we could have the greatest impact. And, and, and out of that process with this group of nine women, and that group of nine women has exploded to involve a significant number and a significant network beyond that, but it still has this core of nine women. Um, and it, it, it turned into Sandpiper because Sandpiper as a venture capital fund of $20 million actually has the capacity to support women with seed stage companies to scale. And that's when women tend to fall out um, of the access to capital. Women get, and underrepresented founders in general, get lots of mentorship um, not always good mentorship, but lots of mentorship. There are lots of programs available. They have access to this sort of 500 to $10,000 checks, 
Um, and then it really dries up and they have trouble getting loans and they have trouble accessing real capital to, to scale their companies. So we said, this is the moment where women need us um, in building their tech companies. And once you get onto a series A as a female founder, suddenly you, 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 your credibility is, 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 is a given. So it's, it's, there's this, and I won't call it a sweet spot because it's a, it's, it's a, it's, there's an incredible gap. And we said, we need to fill that gap. And Sam Piper is filling that gap. But next to filling that gap, we recognize that women don't have the networks and women don't have access and women don't haven't been through the training and, and haven't even developed an understanding of what it means to be an investor or a tech entrepreneur. So we needed to do something beyond Sandpiper, which is a capital vehicle. Um, and so in parallel to that, what came out of this sort of ideation and research um, that we did was the Atlantic Women's Venture Foundation. And that is a nonprofit that is really training women as investors in the tech space. What does it mean to invest in, as an angel or in a fund? Um, and, and also supporting women tech entrepreneurs that may not be yet ready for Sandpiper or may never be ready for Sandpiper or another venture capital, um, uh, but making sure that they understand what the pathways are in our ecosystem for them to be supported. And tell us a little bit about the name. Why is it called Sandpiper? <laughs> well, um, the truth is that um, a Sandpiper, the bird itself is can do it can run and it can swim and it's one of the only i think one the only animal in the world that can do that uh so from multitasking perspective that's one thing and it can in fly the, and it can fly and in the um the the hierarchy it's the female uh, sandpiper that does the hunting and the male sandpiper takes care of uh the home front and for us the uh, sim symbolism of that i think is very powerful also, they travel in large groups, and um, which is another reason why the networking piece was so important for us. In that, you know, we all and, our, and all nine of us have uh, you know significant rolodexes, to use an old uh, term that many of your podcasters may not even know about. <laughs> um, but we do have rolodexes. But today's generation of women um, don't have the same access uh, at when you're twenty and thirty. Uh, to build a network. And we need them to have those networks now. We need them, in, if they're going to be part of this innovation economy that's changing so fast in this fifth industrial revolution, then we have to ensure that they have the network. So the, the network effect was certainly a, a big part of why Sam Piper was, was picked. Rhiannon, you might have some things you want to add. Those are my favorite things about the, 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 the little that bird. That is what, what Sam Piper is. But I, I think the only thing that, I, that I'd add and something that's so important to Sandpiper and who we are is that Sandpiper is there to fill this gap, but it's a gap of opportunity. It's not a gap of, um, of, of charity by any stretch of the imagination. It's a gap of rock star women-led companies that are going to change the world. So we're doing this, yes, with, a, with an altruistic view, but we're doing this because we've recognized that women haven't been getting access to capital. And when you give women access to capital, they knock it out of the park. They're delivering higher revenues. They're delivering um, a, you know, better exits. They're delivering better companies. Um, and, it, and it's not necessarily because women are better, but it's because if you get 
sort of diversity around your boardroom table and around your management table and around all of your tables, both as investors, as, an, as entrepreneurs, you build better businesses and you have better growth and, and you have more of society participating and all of those things. It's so obvious. <laughs> we need to support it. So if you, if you think about where you're at now, you have funds in the, in the fund, you have funds in the fund. That's ironic to say it that way, but you have, capital in the fund, is there a void of female entrepreneurs coming to you? Are you helping to work on increasing that funnel? Because that's, you've got problems at so many stages of the solution here. So I think there's two two things that um, we focus on in Sandpiper. One is the investors. So in addition to uh, supporting female founders, we also want to give women who may um, may not choose to invest in this asset class and opportunity and help learn. Women don't do this type of investing very often. We have to learn about it. We have to understand it. We have to research it because we have risk, different risk uh, tolerances than uh, our male counterparts. So that's one side. On the other side of the equation, when it comes to the investees, so to speak, or the founders of these companies, you know, the same thing happens. We have women who have great ideas, who have you know solutions to the world's problems, or maybe, you know what, a better way to get a pap test, uh, you know, is, a, is likely going to be a solution that a woman creates, not a, no disrespect to the men listening, but it's those types of ideas that we need to have women thinking about, but then we have to give them support because women tend to step back from entrepreneurship, right? It doesn't fit into the societal norms of what we're expected to do in the care uh, parts of our economy, whether it's childcare, senior care, care for the community, um, you know, there's a lot of burden that women have to carry and, you know, helping them see that, you know, this is an opportunity for them to not only, um, you know, impact and change the world, just like Rhiannon did in, in her experiences. She made big differences uh, working in those publicly traded companies that she helped create. Um, so, too, can other women come up with solutions that are world changing, but also balance all of the other stuff. Right. We've done it. And Kathy, one of the questions that still surprises me, but I'm so happy we get it, is when we, we do an investment with a female founder or we speak to somebody, in a, a woman in a pitch meeting, and they look at us and they say, well, how did you do it? And we say, look, we, we, we'll, we'll help you understand that, but it's possible that you can do it, so aspire to do it. And uh, hopefully some of the, the students that are listening to the podcast and others are going to be inspired to go out and take that idea they have and turn it into um, an invention and uh, figure out a way to get it to market. And um, we'll be alongside, hopefully, to do some investing with them. Are people knocking at your door? I think there's lots of, um, we have a significant pipeline at Atlanta, Canada. Um, and we have knocks on the door from all kinds of places. Like it, any, we've, I, I just actually just texted a young woman who um, won a pitch competition here in Newfoundland. Um, she wanted to create ventilators for a, um, third world countries who don't have healthcare systems, who can't pay, they don't have any money to pay for ventilators. So she and her team at an, as an engineering students created a ventilator. So I reached out to her because we're going to talk to her. She's not venture backable today. Um, but if the conversation with one of us or some of us, or, you know, we connect her with you or others, then who knows in two years, three years time, maybe she will solve that problem. We need yeah, a couple of female Elon Musks, right? You know, it's time. She could be on that path. Yeah. 100%. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, 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 and we do see 
female entrepreneurs that are even in very competitive rounds that may have a group of really strategic Silicon Valley um, uh, investors, but they're, they're looking for the people that are going to help them become a CEO. And they're looking for the people that are going to help them to keep their head on straight and to set their governance up. And, and, a, and a handful of those have come to us and we've been able to access competitive rounds simply because Women entrepreneurs are looking for other women who have been there, but also who are really in their court. Um, and, and that's not always the case in, in venture capital. It, it has a, a bad reputation, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. in many cases unnecessarily. Um, but I do think that it's very important for investors in growing companies to, to, to be that sort of sounding board as well. And, and we've sort of been recognized as, as being the ones that can help the CEOs to build themselves into CEOs, which is which is important. And Catherine Lockhart talked about that. They really want to help CEOs become leaders as part of their Propel programming. And, you know, she would describe that 10 years ago, if you asked what Propel was about, it wasn't that. But they really recognized how important building up those kinds of skills are in order to make great CEOs who can go and build great products and raise money and capital. Just listening to you both, I hear optimism, I hear hope, I don't hear frustration, I don't hear how the hell are we going to fix this, I hear lots of solutions. Do you have those moments as a group of nine who got this going? Do you have those moments when you go, can we do it? Is the challenge too big? Yes. Yes. There are absolutely moments of frustration. And, and even this process, I have to say, um, it's been harder to raise $20 million to support women-led technology companies that could change the world than it was for, for me to raise $1.5 billion in an IPO. It is hard work and it's unnecessarily hard work. And I, you'll hear a little bit of anger coming out of my tone there. It is unnecessarily hard work the work that Kathy and Sarah and, I and the rest of the group are doing and the work that the women entrepreneurs are doing. We need to make it easier, easier for us and easier for them because that's where change is gonna come from. So yes, there's a huge amount of frustration, but there's also an incredible amount of hope because there is an amazing pipeline out there. There is an amazing technology out there and it's so rewarding and wonderful to be doing what we are doing to enable this change, but we all have to get on board here because it's too, it's not enough yet. Kathy, I'd just add that I think that um, it, between the frustration and hope too, there's a whole lot of fuel on the, on, on the gas pedal in the context of the stories that we hear. I mean, I told you about my experience uh, about I wasn't going to get promoted because I was going to potentially have, have a baby. baby. Yeah. Well, to hear stories like that now in 2021, when that happened to me in like 19, you know, years ago, that's that fuel on, on the gas pedal, right? And that's... Um, a, motiva a motivating factor for us to work harder and, and try harder and and to reach more women founders because at the end of the day, um, you know, while the society continues to move on, some of these issues are, are not necessarily getting addressed as, as expeditiously and we can't wait. The time, like that woman screamed at me in the UN, right? You're not going to lose your voice. You can't lose 50%, 51% of the ideas. You can't lose them. It's not good for the globe. It's not good for humanity. So let's finish off. I couldn't agree with you more. Um, 
we can't lose them. We have to support them. The gaps are there. It is, it is unnecessarily hard work. Um, some anger can come out there, Rihanna, and it's, it's healthy, I think. Um, so when you think about we're still in a pandemic, you know, we're in that, I don't even know what to call it, recovery, growth, trepidation, treading lightly, you know, it's quite an interesting time. Talk to me about how important Sandpiper is working with women entrepreneurs when you look about the growth of the economy in Atlantic Canada. Obviously, the three of us are here. We love it here. Um, So tell me about what role you hope to play as we get out of the pandemic and look ahead. I think the, the pandemic has highlighted so many opportunities and issues in healthcare, in education, in childcare. I mean, it, it, it's it's really been a bit of a microscope to us. So in a way, it's, it will act absolutely as a catalyst. And I think I, I the tech industry as a whole is so important in terms of creating a vibrating ecosystem in, in Atlantic Canada will change the way we all live and then change the, 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 we'll be able to attract more talent. We'll be able to attract more newcomers. We'll be creating fantastic and fabulous companies. And the wonderful thing about tech companies is that they're not as dependent upon the infrastructures that traditional businesses have. So we have an opportunity in Atlantic Canada that we've never had before. And you see that change, you feel that vibrancy and all four Atlantic provinces. So I think from just a, a tech perspective, the opportunity is there. But if you look at the fact that women are the consumers of healthcare, the consumers of consumer products, and women have more and more access to wealth, and women are also the caregivers. Um, if you look at that on entirety as a package, next to the fact that the health sec- the tech sector is a huge opportunity for our region, we. Sandpiper is so necessary, but Sandpiper is a piece of a, a, a change in focus on diversity and inclusion and on technology that, that we, need to, we need to embrace. What are your thoughts, Kathy? Well, I, I mean, I think the, the pandemic has exposed um, the differences between the expectations of men and women in our society. And, you know, there's, you know, I'm a big believer and I support the term C-session I think this is not going to be an economic recovery that's going to be fair and even. And for that reason, I think Sandpiper, with a whole lot of ecosystem players in Atlanta, Canada, is providing an opportunity for women uh, to be passionate and become an entrepreneur, which I think is the best career as a mom and the best career as a woman I could have ever had. I'm pretty passionate about it. It was, it was the right thing for me, and I'm sure it's the right thing for many other women. But I do think the pandemic has been a gift because in Atlanta, Canada, um, and in the world, geography doesn't matter anymore. So we're pitching to you know investors from all over the country right here. We haven't actually gotten together in a room as Sandpiper Ventures, like many, many, many other businesses and leaders in Atlantic Canada and throughout the, the world have. So the gift of technology and connecting like this in, the, in podcasts or Zoom meetings or Microsoft Teams is a gift that makes the world much, much smaller and that gives us a competitive advantage to take all of our talents out of the region and exploit them uh, for the good of the globe and the good of our, our region. Yeah, I think that was really well said. How do we support you? Where, um, 
you know, you're doing some phenomenal work. How do industry groups, academia, government, how do we support you? Um, I think talk about us, celebrate the stories. Uh, When we ask for help, give us help um, because we're coming. Uh, You know, we got a lot of women out there as founders that need mentors and coaches and investors. Um, So, you know, support us by action, uh, support us by words, um, and support us with opportunities like you have here today, Kathy. What else? Rihanna, anything else to add? I think talk stop, stop talking and I'm not this is not directed to you. Stop talking about this as an in- initiative um, or or a project, but as a huge opportunity for change um, that industry needs to back, government needs to back, technology, the universities that everybody participates in. But this is not something small that should be sidelined because it's a women's issue. This is a societal issue and societal opportunity that we need to grasp here. So um, the passion is there. What does a beautiful rest of 2021 going into 2022 look like? What's your goal for the fund and how how big would you like it to be? How many entrepreneurs would you like to help in the next 12 months? Do you have those kinds of targets and KPIs? You're a good KPI lady, Kathy, with uh, your success um, so tell us what's your what's your vision? Uh, fund one is uh, you know first priority, um, and we number them so that people know that we're not going to stop. Um, you know the pipeline of companies that is in the fifty sixty number now. We'd like to grow that uh, significantly over the next uh, number of months and and into next year. And we you know next year we'd like to close this fund one and move on to uh, other fundraising. So. You know, we welcome investor reach out. We welcome founder reach out. And, um, you know, for us as an, uh, an internal organization, the inside of Sandpiper, you know, giving opportunities to, to Atlantic Canadians to work in a venture capital fund has also been a privilege. Um, we have some amazing staff working for us and with us. And to see them grow uh, as we grow uh, has been really exciting. We hope to continue to leave a trail of um, you know, trained financial analysts and empowered men and women who want to support female founders uh, in our wake. So how do I, I'm an investor, I might want to get engaged with Sam Piper, or I'm an entrepreneur. How do I find you guys and start talking? Oh, really easy. Hello at sandpiper.vc. And send us an email and uh, we'll be sure to respond. That's hello at sandpiper.vc. Perfect. Well, look, I so appreciate both of you and the work that you're doing with your team. I appreciate the challenge that you're tackling, and I hope that um, we get to talk some more, tell more stories about the success that you're, happen- that you're having, and we, we get to put more money into that fund to help more entrepreneurs. So thank you very much. It's phenomenal, the success that you've had, and I can't wait to see what the rest of the year looks like in 2022 as well. So thank you for joining me today. Thank you, Kathy, for the opportunity and for the support. I love learning about their name, Sam Piper Ventures, and the symbolism that it represents. An inspiring name for an inspiring organization and group of women founders who got this started. The pandemic has highlighted opportunities for us in Atlantic Canada, and I love when Rhiannon talked about how Sandpiper Ventures are here to fill the gap for women entrepreneurs, and she called it a gap of opportunity. 
Please go to Sandpiper VC to learn more. You can reach them at hello at sandpiper.vc. Thank you again, Kathy and Rhiannon. You and your team are doing critical work and we need your leadership to empower others and to increase that oh-so-necessary venture funding for women founders and CEOs. These podcast conversations make me realize just how much you are shaped in your early years. And by getting to know more about Kathy and Rhiannon, it explains how their personal values and upbringing really drives their work today and what's important to them as they keep building our Atlantic Canadian economy. Don't forget, you can always go over to our show notes on our techimpact.it website in the blog. Finally, this diversity and inclusion series is here to generate awareness and to educate us all on the issues, gaps, challenges, and the opportunities. I so appreciate the opportunity to talk to guests like Rian and Kathy who are deep into doing something about the issues and challenges through their work not only at Sandpiper Ventures, but the various positions where they are bringing their talents forward. We need more women like you. Talk soon, everyone.